All right, I'll go ahead and pray and we'll get started. Lord, we just thank you and praise you again that you have allowed us to come together to learn about you, learn about your word, Lord, and I pray that as we do gather this morning that we would recognize that you are a holy God and that you are perfect beyond even our own comprehension. Lord, that uh, in your perfection and in your holiness, you are also a God that does not tolerate sin. And uh, Lord, you are a just God who must deal with sin in a holy, righteous way. And as we see that today, Lord, I pray that you would drive into our hearts our need for you and the knowledge that, Lord, we cause such great offense, even daily, even as believers, Lord that we would run uh, to your cross and that we would throw ourselves on your mercy, Lord, and that in that position of forgiveness in your Son, Lord, that we would stand as heirs of your great kingdom and, Lord, that we would desire to be your servants forever. Amen. I have an alarm set on my phone. (laughs) Um, And I'm going to try and keep us in, in the in the text as well as I can today, and if there's a little time at the end, we'll, we'll kind of expand this as we go forward. Today we're going to be in Genesis 19, and we're going to learn a lot about God's wrath. If, uh, I think it's important that we look back in Genesis 18 and see why it is we even know that Genesis 19 exists. Um, it's because back in Genesis 18, verses 17 and 18, as, as God is getting up to leave, having promised Isaac will be there within the year, God gets up to leave, and in verse 17, he says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so there's this guarantee by God that in the future, Abraham's descendants are going to be numerous to the point that many nations will be coming out of, out of Abraham. And because of that, because of the knowledge that many nations are going to be coming out of it, God has said, I am going to tell him what I'm about to do in Sodom. And because he tells him what, it's, what he's going to do, it gets included in our Bibles and, and we're able to actually have this story given to us. But more specifically there in verse 19, it it gets in a little more detail as to why is Abraham being told this. And it's because I've chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And what he had spoken about him is, through you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And I'm going to make you a holy people. I want you to follow after me. And this was all in the context of circumcision. That you're going to be a, you're going to be a group of people that's completely and totally set aside to God. And out of you, my king is going to come. So it's there for us, Verse chapter 19 is there for us so that we might keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. It is not there for us so that we can look back in time and decide, boy, we're really nice people. Um, that's not at all what you should take away from chapter 19. It's not to say, here's the wicked versus you guys. It's, it's, it's more than that. 
So then we, we just in review again in, from flowing on in that chapter, we have God saying, I'm, uh, you know, the outcry is great. I'm going to go down and see what's going on. And Abraham knows what that means. He knows God isn't going to tolerate the wickedness he finds there. He's aware of what is down there. And he comes to God and he says, will you sweep away the righteous and the wicked? And what if there's 50? And then, well, you know, forgive me, Lord, but what if there's 45? And he slowly whittles this down. Um, and he gets down and, and in verse 32, he says, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he, being God, said, I will not destroy it on the count of the ten. And as soon as he finished speaking to Abraham, he departed. And Abraham returned to his place. So imagine that you don't know the story. Imagine that this is the first time you're reading this. You've got to wonder how many is he going to find. I know the first time I heard this story, I was very small. And I was like, I wonder how many are there. I mean, how many righteous people are there in Sodom and Gomorrah? in Sodom itself. Um, and in my mind, I was, just, I was wondering, are there 50? Are there? And I was picturing people like the people around me at my church. How many people were there? Certainly they have a church there in Sodom, right? They've got to be a few righteous people there. But we're left kind of hanging as far as the number goes. But we're also left with this statement, and 33, I think, is very poignant, because up to this point, it's all about who is Abraham, and God is, because of who Abraham is, God is telling him the story, and God then puts Abraham literally in his place. It ends with that. As soon as God finishes speaking to Abraham, God departs. God is going to carry on what God is going to do, and Abraham returns to his place. Well, what is that place? He's the father of many nations. But even as the father of many nations, he is not the one who produces those nations out of his own loins. It is God who's shown that he is going to do that, even in the life of Ishmael, even in the life of Isaac. And more importantly, God doesn't just make the nations. The fate of the nations are in the hands of God. God himself is the one who judges all nations. Over in, in Amos, who knew that Amos could be so important? Has, any, has anyone read Amos yet since I've brought up Amos? You guys got to read. Ethan's read Amos. Amos is great. Over in Amos 3, God is talking about the, the actually this is specifically the children of Israel, and he's telling them exactly what judgments are going to come on the northern kingdom of Israel. And he talks about things that just happen to go together. Um, Two people don't walk together in verse 3 unless they've had an appointment to do so, unless they've agreed upon it. A lion doesn't roar in the forest when he has no prey. A young lion growls from his den unless he's captured something. Those things are all natural. A bird falls into a trap on the ground when there's no bait in it. No, of course, there's bait. Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? Is a trumpet blown in a city? Will not the people tremble? And then finally, if a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? And we even ourselves have a tendency to become deists 
when we see natural disasters and say, well, we're all pretty bad off. It'd be wrong to say that a natural disaster has occurred to a city or to a location. And it's just, it's just God sometimes lets these things happen. The earth is groaning. It's trying to return to its original state. And we spiritualize it. But very often, very often these things are in concordance with the will of God and with his plan. And, and very often calamity, especially calamities that we see where thousands die and everything is destroyed. We separate that from the wrath of God, that God's wrath is real. In fact, in verse 7, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. In other words, know what God has told you in his word and you'll see that these things are true. God is revealing to you in verse 6 that he judges cities, that he judges nations. Verse 8 there is great. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So when we get back into chapter 18. It's the Lord that judges nations. It's the Lord that brings about calamity to peoples. It's not Abraham. Abraham is left in his place and God is now going to carry out the destruction of the city. And now we jump down into the city, and we're into today's text. The doom of Sodom is how it's labeled in my, in my New American Standard. It's appropriate. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground, and he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. We get a lot of insight into Lot. First of all, we have these two angels, I'd assume they're the two that just left Abraham, and it's spoken of, it's like two separate stories going on here, one right after the other, but again, I think it helps us understand that this story is in there specifically because of Abraham being the father of many nations and wanting those of us who would claim to be coming from Abraham, even those who, are, who he is our spiritual father, that those of us who are coming from Abraham might learn to keep the way of the Lord. So here's the story, and, and we have these two angels then, and then we have Lot. Well, what's, what's Lot's position here in this town? He's sitting at the gate of Sodom. So in those Eastern cultures, you would have seen the leaders being the ones who sit in the gate, being the ones who judge, the ones who have authority. We're, we're in 2 Samuel right now, and, and after Absalom uh, is killed in his revolt against the king, in his attempted coup against the king. David is in mourning, and then finally his, king, his, his captain of the guard says, look, you've got to come out, or the people are all going to think we, we, we risked our lives for nothing. And so then David does come out, and what does he do? He sits in the gate of the city. He returns to his official capacity as judge and ruler of the city. So we have here Lot is in the gate, of Sodom. So he has authority there. He has wealth. 
We knew that because God earlier in Genesis mentions that he blessed Lot. And we see that uh, not only does he have a position of authority, he would have been a judge in the community. He would have been somebody who helped settle disputes. He's a wealthy man. He knows what this community is about because when the angels say, we're just going to spend the night in the square, he goes, no, 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 no. You can't do that. This is not the type of place you spend the night in the square. And, uh, and by the way, in the morning, you can be on your way. Please don't stay. This is not a good place, is basically what he's saying. And yet Lot's there. And yet Lot, in spite of the type of people that are there, has maintained a position of authority. And you can just think in your mind all the compromises that must have taken place for him to get there. And I don't think you could exaggerate as we see the character of this man play out. So verse 4. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. So without exception, they have people coming from all over the city. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him. And said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. So how pervasive is the sin of this city? How pervasive is the corruptness of this city that God is coming to judge? The men of the city, the men of Sodom surrounded the house. Young, old, all the people from every quarter. So you have the young, you have the old, you have people from every class, every financial background that would have been there, any kind of job that's available. Everybody. There is a representative from the entire community who's come outside his house and is banging on the door to get in. It's not all the people of Sodom, mind you, but it is at least somebody from basically every part of the city. It's all inclusive. It pervades Every area of the city, that's the, that's the depravity that is present here in Sodom. Apparently, just as an aside, when we talked about angels cohabiting with women and breeding this race, when we have the daughters of, of Seth and the, the sons of man and all that, apparently at, there is an opportunity for physical relations between angels and people. And we're seeing that played out here. So verse 8. Now behold, this is Lot. I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you. And do to them whatever you like, only do nothing to these men, inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great. So they had wearied themselves trying to find the door. What a horrific picture we're given here. 
Those of you who have children, those of you especially who have daughters, I hope cringe at the thought. They're after these guests of Lot's. And in exchange, Lot says, no, take my daughters instead. I, I, I've said in the past, I would have paid money for a daughter. I would have spoiled her rotten. It would have been terrible. She would have been, turned out to be not good at all. But I can't imagine what he's thinking here. That he's going to give up his two daughters to these people knowing full well what could happen, what would happen. And then we see an even more clear picture of the people that are there. And their, their response to him in verse 9, this one came as an alien. So they understand Lot is an outsider. Lot is not originally from the community. Um, he's from the outside. And he's acting like a judge. Well, he was a judge. He was a rich guy who sat in the gate who actually determined law for them, helped them decide between each other, gave them counsel, made decisions for the whole community. He's like on the county board. Now we will treat you worse than them. So we see these people disregard even the most natural basic law of their community. They're disregarding the authority that Lot has. In fact, they mock him rather than respect him. They mock him as, as being one in authority. They disregard all local customs. These are people who have come to my house. Lot appeals to that as well. They're guests. They're just traveling through. But ultimately, these things are things that are, uh, are written on every man's heart and they're given by God. They, they reject every authority that could possibly be given to them. And it just makes them fight even harder against it. And then the other characters here are, are the angels themselves. And we see the angels themselves saving Lot and the household. The angels miraculously here, I think the picture can't be explained any other way. They reach out and grab Lot and bring him in and shut the door and then strike those outside the house with blindness. But the people outside the house, even though they've been injured, even though they've been punished for their wickedness, even though they're wounded, they still pursue sin beyond any sort of reason. They're still crawling, and you can just picture it, crawling around what in them would be the dark. They look like they're blind now, crawling around in darkness, trying to find the door, trying to pursue this sin that on so many levels is so horrific. Hopefully you're getting a picture of how severe this issue really is. If we look over in Romans, lest we forget that this is, this is an old text. This is happening hundreds of years before the time of Christ. Yet warnings are given that this is how God, this is what happens to people when they reject God. Romans 1, 24, Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their 
Women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, the men abandoned the natural functions of women and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they not see, did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. Again, he's giving them over to their depraved mind to do things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they do not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And then chapter 2 goes on to say they're without excuse. So we see that all of that started with the fact that they didn't acknowledge God and honor God for who he is. So we're given in Romans a background of this is how a people gets to be this depraved. That description of those people almost fits exactly the picture we're given of these people in Sodom. So I'm going to assume the rest of that's going on as well. I think that would be, that would be appropriate. But we know this was given to the people of Israel, to, to the descendants of, of Abraham, as a warning. Turn over to Judges. Judges 19. And in Judges 19, this is, this is taking place before there's kings, before the time of Samuel even, at the end of, of Judges, at the end of this period between Joshua and Israel being given kings. And we have here a Levite. He's not a, necessarily a good person. If you read the whole story, there's nobody good in this story. But now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. We recognize some of these spots, right? And his concubine played the harlot against him and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah and there was a period of four months. So that's kind of the picture of the people that we have here. Then her Husband arose and went after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back, taking with him his servant and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him, and he remained there three days, so they ate and drank and lodged. And on the fourth day, they got up early in the morning, prepared to go, and they wanted him to stay longer. So jump down to verse 10. The man was... So now they've gone on their journey. He's not willing to stay anymore. They saddled their donkeys, he and his concubine. And uh, then down in verse 12, well, let's see, actually jump down um, to 13. He and his servant, come, let us approach one of these places and we'll spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed and went on the way and the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there in order to enter the lodge of Gibeah. And when they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city. 
For no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening, and the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying in Gibeah, but the men of the place were Benjamites. So these are, these are the people of Israel. This is the tribe of Benjamin here in Gibeah. And again, we have someone who's going to spend the night in the square of the city. This should all be starting to sound familiar. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, for I am from there. And I went to Bethlehem in Judah, but I am now going to my house and no man will take me into his house. Yet there's both straw and fodder for our donkeys and also bread and wine for me, your maidservant, and the young man who is with your servant, there is no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace to you, only let me take care of all your needs. However, do not spend the night in the open square. So he took him to his house and gave the donkeys fodder and they washed their feet and they ate and drank. And they were celebrating. Behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows surrounded the house, pounding on the door. And they spoke to the owner of the house and the old man saying, bring out the man who came into your house that we may have relations with him. Then the man, the owner of the house went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly. Since the man has come into my house, do not commit this act of folly. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish, but do not commit such an act of folly against this man. But the men would not listen to him, and so they seized his concubine and brought her out to them. She eventually dies down in 28, he goes out and finds her and says, get up and let us go, but there's no answer. There's no answer because she's dead. Then he placed her on the donkey and the men arose and went home. And when he did get home, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and cut her into 12 pieces limb by limb and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. He ends up sending pieces of her to the entire nation, to each tribe in Israel, saying this is what happened by the people of Israel. So you get why God gave this story back in Genesis. God is warning the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin ignores the warning. And we see this play out exactly the way it did back in Genesis 19. You can imagine the people of Israel standing outside on the other side of the Jordan, ready to go in and, and take this country. And they're going, we're going to go take these people because they're evil, awful people. Yeah, I mean, Abraham dealt with them. We're learning all about them now. We're the good guys. We're going to go in and take it. We're the righteous ones. So back in chapter 19. So now they're safe inside the house. The people that had come to attack them are now wandering the city streets aimlessly, trying to find, actually climbing around, feeling everything, trying to commit their sin. Verse 12, Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and a daughters and whoever you have in the city, bring them out of this place. It's now safe. Go out and get everybody who is with you and bring them with you. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-laws who were to marry his daughters and said, up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his son-in-laws to be jesting. They aren't going to listen. No desire. Then morning dawned. 
the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, and you will be swept away in the punishment, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. So all the people, there's this, this grace given to any person who's, who's associated with Lot, but we see the rest of the people here represented, I believe, by the, the son-in-laws. They don't take the wrath of God seriously, even when it's there and that is the day that it will occur on. He's surely not serious. You almost think that this must have been what it was like for, for Noah in his day, warning of the coming wrath. They don't take him seriously. God doesn't destroy cities. God doesn't judge. Sure, those things happen, but it's not in the hand of God. So morning dawns and the angels urge Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot hesitates. How? How does he hesitate? He just saw what these angels did to the men. He knows what's going to come. He knows that they're angels. Lot hesitates. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. He drags Lot. They drag Lot, the two daughters, and Lot's wife out of the city. They have to be forcibly removed because God is compassionate upon them. They deserve to be in that city. They want to be in that city. The destruction is coming. Even with all of the terribleness that just took place at his house, he still wants to live there. So verse 17, And when they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life, even when I didn't really want to be. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please, let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? So the angels that just saved him from the wrath of God say, go up the mountain." oh, I'm worried that I might be overtaken. I don't know that you know what you're doing here, angel, but maybe I could go down the, the street and stay in this other town. I really like towns. I want to stay in a town. Literally kicking and screaming, Lot resists. The angel, he said to him, behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zor. It's an interesting insight into, into the power and the authority that was given to the angels, that they had some authority to carry out what God has planned, but there's some wiggle room here that they have the ability to judge whether or not this small town is going to be overthrown as well. And they also are under God's command to not do anything to Lot and his family are removed. And so he's like, you got to get there because I'm going to destroy this and I need you gone. It's, it's, it's a really interesting view of uh, the role of angels and in their interaction with God. 
Um, but we aren't, we aren't exactly told how this all works out, just that it's there, and I think it's, it's of interest um, of how those, those beings are different than us. It's yet another, another way that they are different than we are. Um, so they go to the town called Zor. We just see this continually, continual hesitation by Lot, his wife, and his daughters. All too often, we know what's about to happen to Lot's wife, and we think she's the bad one here. And Lot and his daughters, thank goodness they got out. And yeah, she, she messes up, but they're, they were interested in leaving. No, they weren't. They wanted to be as close to where they were before as possible, and they didn't even want to go, even with the promised destruction. He must not have been a very good preacher when he went to his son-in-laws and said, you need to leave, because he himself wasn't convinced that he needed to leave. Then in verse 23, the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor, and the Lord raided on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. We see the destruction of Lot's wife, who continues to desire the city even as it's destroyed. She's caught in, in that destruction. Turn over to Luke. Luke 4. Mm, look at that, I got the wrong one. The seed, the sower and the seed. How did I write that down wrong? I mean Mark 4? Mark 4. Let's try Mark 4. Yeah, let's go to Mark 4. Isn't that funny how my mind doesn't work? Um, and yet I knew it might be in Mark. Uh, all right. So we see the seed. There are those that are mentioned here that the, the seed is sown and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness and riches and the desires for things, this is in verse 19, for other things enter and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So there are those that taste and see that the Lord, he is good. They taste the compassion of the Lord. They experience in this temporal sense of what it is to be rescued from God's destruction. But the desires for the flesh, the things of the world that they love, choke out any kind of growth that could occur. And they are lost. And I think she fits, she fits perfectly in that parable, in the, that type of soil. So then we go to <clears throat> verse 27 now, back in, in Genesis 19. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. You can just see the, the waves of heat that were present it's not just smoke. This is that, that clear smoke that you see. You know when you're, when you're grilling and you wait until the top of it comes out nice and clear? Then you know it's ready because it's so hot. 
serious heat. And Abraham looks and he sees this smoke of a furnace. And thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. And he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. So we already saw that God saved Lot because God had compassion on him. And now we see this ultimate salvation of Lot would have been because God remembered Abraham. God is doing something kind and gracious to Abraham here in saving Lot and his family. So ultimately, it's because God's compassion on Abraham. Now, it is a good reminder, well, why, why would God save Lot? Because he's compassionate on Abraham. Lot was Abraham's nephew. Technically, in that culture, Lot's father died when Lot was fairly young, and so Lot kind of took his place. So we have Lot and Abraham who are basically being raised as brothers. Lot was around when Abraham got the call to come out of Ur. He was around when he made the when his uh, when Abraham's father died, and then they continued the land the the travel into Israel. He was around when Abraham built up altars to God and they worshipped God in Israel. He was around when Abraham went down to Egypt and failed to show faith there, and then came back. And God greatly blessed Abraham and Lot. Lot has seen all of these things. He has this relationship with Abraham that we need not to forget. In fact, it'd be good to remember that Lot's wife experienced all those things. Those of you who are young who are here, those of you who were raised in the church, raised with parents who teach you these stories, understand that Lot and Lot's wife have all the benefits that you have. They have seen God and seen that he is good. They They have tasted of it. And yet they desire for the world and they desire for destruction over living with God and living under his veil of compassion. This relationship between Abraham and Lot is brought about, or was brought up here, I think, because we need to remember the type of people in the background of who Lot and his wife and his children are. And then it gets ugly. It hasn't gotten ugly yet. Now it gets ugly. I'm just going to read through this. Lot went up from Zor and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zor and stayed in a cave he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. There's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine to get tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn first bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. 
As for the younger, she bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. And we won't pursue who those peoples are. But let's just point out here that we have two children that were raised in a pagan world. Surprise, surprise, they're behaving like pagans. Two children whose father did not give them the protection and love that they needed when people were at the door. He was ready to give them up. They clearly didn't see the love of a father that they needed, but no excuse for their own behaviors. They too had to be dragged out. They too would have known all the stories. If they didn't know Abraham himself, they would have known all the stories. They would have been well acquainted with the God of Abraham. So the sins that we see here are that of incest, alcohol, to excess. We see the poor example of an older sister and leading her younger sister. We've already seen the poor leadership of Lot over his daughters and the protection he is to give them and afford them. And out of that, God produces two new nations. <clears throat> Why bring that up? I mean, certainly the people of Israel now have dealt with Moab. With Moab. They've dealt with the Ammonites by the time this is written. And so that would have given them some context. But I think it's more than that. I think after we see the, 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 the evil of Sodom, we now see that sin is continuing. It's not going to stop. It doesn't stop with Sodom. It's not like God came and destroyed Sodom so that, boy, this type of sin never happens again. We've already shown that it happens in Judges to the people of Israel where one tribe is almost completely wiped out because they didn't think that was that bad what happened there. So we're okay and the rest of the tribes come and they, they basically wipe out the tribe of Benjamin. It continues on. Sin continues on. It continues. We have two new nations here that are not the children of God. And all of this, if we go back again, again, can't enforce enough. Man, if you really want to know what a story in the Bible is about, read the context of where this came from. This was all coming right after the promise of Isaac, the son. Remember back to Genesis 3, we're promising a son. There is a seed that is to come. There is one that is going to come, and it's going to come through Abraham, and it's going to come through Sarah. That's the context here. But here we're sowing this evil. You guys can't even, I challenge you, name something that isn't found here in Sodom, either in the city itself or represented somehow in the behavior of the people of the city or the behavior of Lot and his daughters. It's all there. The only hope is that the seed that is coming through the nation of Israel for all the other nations just keep coming. The sins keep coming over and over again. If you look back in the last hundred years and you see terrible things that happen to people in this world, don't be surprised if for our children and their children, they're going to see the same thing. Or if you look back 200 years that, hey, there was some really bad stuff going on then too. And 500 years before that, it just keeps marching on. The evil of people. So what do we do with this? I hope, I hope I've made your heart heavy. I honestly do. Because I don't think you ever read the Bible and see yourself, if you see yourself in the heroes of the Bible, 
If you read about David and you picture yourself, I need to be one who slays giants. Or you see Daniel, I want to be one who is faithful. That's great. Be those things. But understand the best way you want, the best way to learn is you read these stories and you go, how am I like Lot? How am I like his wife? How am I like his daughters? How am I like the men of Sodom? Do I pursue sexual impurity to the point where I'm blind to everything else? Maybe not outright, but in my mind, do I do those things? Do I ignore the riches of God's word and the people of God and what he's given me with church, this community that he's given us to the point where if given the opportunity, I still would pursue the world? That's what this is about. This is about teaching you. This was about teaching the people of Israel. This is who you can become. You are capable of being these people. We already saw that what are the chances if you were born in Sodom, you would have been a bad person. If you think I would have been better, I would have been good, chances are you're wrong because most of the people in Sodom were that way. If you were born in the time of Sodom in that city, there's a decent chance you're at that door knocking on it, trying to get in. For you to believe otherwise, it would only happen through the grace and and mercy of God and you would be responsible for your own sin and you would be destroyed. So don't look at this as, yeah, I don't want to ever be like that. Look at this as, I don't understand why I'm not. Now it's Easter. What a great chapter of the Bible to fall upon on Easter, right? It would have been better if we heard it two days ago, right? And I'm not a huge fan of Easter, and let me clarify really quick. I think every Sunday we celebrate God's resurrection of Christ. I think that's why we gather on Sundays. I think it's neat that our culture gives us one day specifically um, where we focus on that. But let's, before we get to focusing on that, let's focus on why Easter, why was he in the tomb to begin with? I love that we're singing uh, when I survey the wondrous cross today. Picture yourself in whatever your sin, whatever your, your inclination is that is displayed in chapter 19, because I can just about guarantee you there is something in your heart that's displayed in chapter 19 of Genesis. And now think of the words of the hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but lost and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, Demands my soul, my life, my all. Because you see, the seed that is promised throughout Genesis that they're looking forward, that's going to come through Isaac, doesn't just come in and save his people 
by turning them into a, a wonderful place, a wonderful nation ruled by a, a good God. He actually comes and he bears the sin of his own people that deserved the destruction of Sodom. He actually comes and no wonder he cries on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God pours upon him the wrath that we deserve that is displayed in Genesis 19. Genesis 19 is to point us to the son that's coming through Isaac. Genesis 19 is to point at our need for a savior beyond just so Israel has a King David and a King Solomon and eventually gets a place called Jerusalem and and land. We need a savior. We need that seed. and, And hopefully through Genesis 19, you can see that need in yourself. And then this morning, as we take a particular look at Easter itself, we can say, thank you, Lord, for that Savior. Thank you, Lord, that he lived a perfect life. And it is demonstrated that he lived a perfect life because you have decided, you have determined to raise him up. And he is risen indeed. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much that you are a kind and gracious God and you give us, you wrote down for us or had written for us this story of Sodom, Lord, that we would fear you, that we would fear you and that we would desire, Lord, uh, to do good, that we would learn to hate evil, Lord, that you gave us it for that purpose and that we would live justly and that we would live righteously. Lord, I pray that you would shine a light into our hearts, that we might know where it is we sin, that we might know where it is that we fall short, and that we might uh, throw ourselves on your mercy on the cross. We thank you for your son, the promised seed that that since chapter 3 we've been looking for, hoping for, Lord. And the, the good part of this story is that he's coming. You still have a plan, and you're still working out that plan in the life of Abraham at that time. And Lord, I pray that we'd take advantage of what you've given us in Christ and uh, that we would be as the good soil, that the seed fell upon it, Lord, and that you would cause it to grow in our hearts and that we would bring forth fruit all through your compassion, as the story says, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.